I am a tribute to everyone that stayed up at night taking care of me, that went to the ends of, you know, of experimental thought of you know, how to save my life. I'm just a fortunate recipient of these incredible people. Uh, this was not a, I was strong and, and made it through. This is, I, I woke up because people were unwilling to say we're done. The muscle aches and the joint aches and the fever and the trouble breathing was just profound. For the first time, I understand why they call this the beast. I'm Rob Piercy. I'm Rachel Tampa. And this is Lab Notes. Hey, Ryan, how are you? Noel, good to meet you. Likewise. That's Dr. Ryan Paget. He's an emergency room physician at Evergreen Health Medical Center in Kirkland, Washington, just east of Seattle. I asked him what a typical day is like in the ER. <laughs> the only thing constant in an emergency department shift is you're going to be on your feet for 10 hours straight. Uh, you'll probably need to go to the bathroom for two hours before you finally get there. And you better have a granola bar and a bottle of water right there because there's no such thing as a coffee break or a lunch break. Everything else is completely unpredictable. So it was with COVID-19. You remember that first case, or at least what was the first known case at the time? Yeah, I feel like it was so long ago, but it was really just a few months. And I remember being not at all surprised that the Seattle area was the first case. Right. This was a guy who had traveled to visit family in Wuhan, China, um, he was in his 30s, came back to Snohomish County, Washington, and he was treated at a hospital just 20 miles from Dr. Paget's hospital. So you had a sense like this was going to hit us somehow, but you never predict that you're going to be the epicenter and that somehow it infiltrated this group of the most fragile people you can imagine. Uh, we had our first positive test result on the 29th of February, which came back from a patient that had passed the day before. That patient was the first reported U.S. coronavirus death. It was a patient from a nursing home called Life Care Center. Of course, immediately everyone's eyes open up and say, wow, so we saw the patient in the ER simply with a surgical mask. We ran up to a code to put a breathing tube in this patient, unprotected. And all of a sudden, people are getting really scared. It didn't take long for us to figure out, well, that patient came from that nursing facility. We have like 10 plus patients in the hospital from that same place. And you just, you felt like this wave was about to crash on you. Yeah, it's so weird to think that we're just, you know, we were just right across the lake from Kirkland reading about this stuff in the news and this is what it was like in, in the hospital over there for Dr. Paget. Yeah, in many ways, it felt like it was, you know, still completely a world away, even though it's just on the other side of Lake Washington. Like everyone suddenly knew what Kirkland, Washington was. And you have to remember, too, this was really early on in the outbreak and well before most of us knew much of anything about coronavirus. There's this huge unknown. You're 
pretty fearful that something's coming down that we've never seen before. And then there's that fear of like not even knowing how it's transmitted. You know, CDC shows up next day and we expect that there's a plug and play model of how to handle a crisis like this. There was no plug and play for COVID-19. The hospital turned half the ER into an isolation ward, the ICU into a COVID ward, and the staff began wearing spacesuit-looking protective gear as the hospital filled with suspected COVID-positive patients. The virus was spreading like wildfire. The concern over the coronavirus here in the U.S. now widening. We topped 100 known cases. I really think that we are past the point of containment. In more than two decades of clinical medicine, Dr. Paget had only taken five sick days, and most of those were due to surgeries for old injuries from his days playing college football at Northwestern University. But just a couple of days after the first COVID patients came through the ER doors, Ryan started feeling sick. First symptoms were on the 7th and 8th, which is that Saturday and Sunday. Just had a headache like I never had before. Not terrible in, in type, but I just don't get headaches and feeling kind of run down. You know, take, take a naperson and you keep going. Um, then that Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday is when the traditional stuff showed up. So the fevers, the drenching sweats, the dry cough. And so probably that Tuesday is when I finally let it kind of seep into my mind that that's what it could be. And then Wednesday started feeling short of breath. Thursday got worse, and then uh, about five in the morning on Friday, I was on the ventilator. I can't believe it was that fast. That's crazy. It just goes to show that even in people who are outwardly healthy, just how quickly this can cut them down at the knees. Yeah, that's terrifying to think you could be just feeling a little sick early in the week, and then by the end of the week, you're on a ventilator. Evergreen Health confirms that one of its doctors contracted coronavirus. They say he's hospitalized in critical but stable condition. Everything Dr. Paget knows about the next 17 days is what he's been told by his doctors, his friends, and his family, because he was unconscious the whole time. He developed what's called a cytokine storm. I feel like we've probably all heard the phrase cytokine storm in news reports, or at least maybe more than we had six months ago. But what is a cytokine storm? In the most basic sense, it's an overreaction of our own immune system. You know, imagine our immune system is this silent sentinel that's just sitting there waiting to pounce and attack whenever there's a foreign invader. In a cytokine storm, it keeps attacking even after that foreign invader is wiped out and it starts attacking our own tissues. In Ryan's case, that led to multiple organ failure. Big four for me was my lungs. So I ended up with ARDS, acute respiratory distress syndrome, essentially these uh, very inflexible, scarred uh, lungs that can't, they aren't elastic uh, to allow you to get the proper oxygen. My heart. Uh, it was only functioning at a third of normal. My kidneys had failed, so I was on dialysis. And then my liver was failing as well. 
Having tried everything to save him, including drugs that suppressed his immune system, Dr. Paget's care team decided to try what's called ECMO, extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. The ventilator just wasn't giving his body the oxygen he needed to survive. Even with maximal settings, with maximum oxygen being put into my lungs, with maximum pressure to force the oxygen through the lung tissue onto red blood cells, even on those maximal measures, we couldn't do it. Put simply, ECMO siphons out your blood, oxygenates it, and then pumps it back into your body. I was on ECMO for about a week. It finally allowed my body to get the appropriate oxygen, keep my blood pressure up, and also give your body a rest. So much of the healing needs to be your body having that extra energy and ability. And so the machine, you know, allowed my body to rest a bit. Well, the Canada-U.S. border is being closed to all non-essential traffic. The reality tonight is this crisis is getting worse, and what we do will determine how bad it gets. While Dr. Ryan Paget was resting, the world was changing. During the 17 days he was unconscious and fighting for his life, states issued stay-at-home directives. Schools closed. Travel was restricted. We all tried to find that last half bottle of Purell we knew we had in the cabinet somewhere. Life as we knew it came to a standstill. Avoid gathering in groups of more than 10 people. Avoid discretionary travel. And avoid eating and drinking at bars, restaurants, and public food courts. Finally, in late March, more than two weeks after doctors put him on a ventilator, the beast let Ryan Paget go. Just this incredible group of people saved my life. He woke up to a whole new world. It was, it was incredible. Yeah, you, you turn on the TV, and you, you realize that this world had stopped. Like, you, don't, you don't think that anything can do that. And, and you see these pictures of downtown Seattle with no cars at noon. You see that the whole world is shut down. It was incredible, the outpouring of supportive people. And, and people that were hurting, people that didn't have a job now, and yet the support of healthcare providers, the support of each other, was really incredible. I, it, I, I thought it was very hopeful because you saw this well of desire and ability for us to help our fellow man and woman. COVID constitutes the greatest health challenge in a hundred years. Among those trying to help is Dr. Mukesh Jain, a cardiovascular researcher at University Hospital's Cleveland Medical Center in Ohio. This is remarkable in its scope. I mean, it's literally brought the world to a stop. 
Dr. Jane is also the team lead on a project supported by the American Heart Association Allen Initiative in Brain Health and Cognitive Impairment. His work in this four-year project is to explore how red blood cells and the inner lining of blood vessels, which is called the endothelium, work together to drive brain health and age-related cognitive diseases like Alzheimer's and other dementias. Now, I know right now people are probably asking themselves, okay, what does this have to do with COVID? We'll get there in a moment, I promise. looking at tissues of people that have passed away from dementia, they often have these little lesions all over the place, almost like little blood vessels that collapsed. And as a consequence, a handful of brain cells succumbed. My father had this, and so it's it's very personal. Um, He died from dementia and from a form where small blood vessels get knocked off over time called Binswanger's disease. And I remember the progression very well from forgetfulness to eventually watching someone lose their identity and not know who they were, not recognize his spouse or his kids, and um, frankly and mercifully passed away in 2005. It was a personal tragedy that has driven Dr. Jane to get to the bottom of this. What causes these blood vessels in the brain to collapse, and if there's a way to intervene before that happens? The blood is complicated. You have the blood vessel, you have blood cells, and then you have the liquid component of blood. To uncomplicate it, Dr. Jane explains the circulatory system like this. The blood vessel is literally a highway. It's a large highway that then breaks up into smaller, smaller highways till you get to the driveway to each house. It's almost like the little small blood vessel that supplies each cell. It really has two major functions. It's to deliver energy in the form of oxygen and nutrients and to deliver defense. Defense meaning the immune response. The failure to do either one of those and cells begin to die as they do in many forms of dementia. So how do you keep the highways open and the blood delivering cargo? Dr. Jane and his colleagues have been working on a few different approaches. One of them involves a family of proteins called KLFs, which keep the endothelium healthy, reducing the potential for clots. There's already a drug that augments KLFs called bortezomib. But Dr. Jane's team is also studying a compound called P7C3, which, in addition to enhancing KLFs, helps with energy production in the blood. Finally, they're also studying another compound called ethyl nitrite, or ENO for short. ENO is a gas that patients inhale, and it allows hemoglobin in your blood to carry more oxygen to your cells. Now to the mystery COVID-19 symptoms that doctors are sounding the alarm about. When Dr. Jane and his colleagues began hearing about the complications from COVID-19, they realized the therapies they'd been working on for preventing dementia could help in the pandemic. We immediately had lab meetings to try to think about what we are doing and try to get some of these agents into patients with COVID. For many patients, COVID complications are connected to a lack of oxygen and nutrients, the cargo, making it to cells. Others experience clotting issues, which can lead to circulation problems or even stroke. 
Bortezomib, P7C3, and Eno could be less invasive alternatives to ventilators and ECMO, and more importantly, they could reduce permanent injuries to patients' lungs, hearts, and other organs. These therapies would work in really a coordinate way to one, keep the blood vessel and highway open, and number two, maximize oxygen delivery. One of the therapies, Eno, which as you'll recall allows hemoglobin to carry more oxygen to cells, has already been tested in people and it's very effective. We'd already done one arm of the study and I just was our guinea pig. That's Dr. Jane's colleague, James Reynolds. He's wearing a t-shirt from the post-punk band Joy Division. And just a few minutes into our conversation, it's clear he's exactly the kind of scientist you would expect to volunteer himself. The main goal of that was not so much for me to try Eno as to be able to get the lab team comfortable with all the steps without a volunteer. He wanted to experience what it's like so that he can tell subjects that are going to be exposed to it what it feels like. Um, I think that's incredibly laudable. Was this the first time that you've tried out one of your own kind of research treatments, or is this a regular practice for you to, to test therapies on yourself? I don't want to sound like a, too much of an altruistic um, idiot, but I, I felt it was important to feel what I was asking these volunteers to undergo. So I've done just about every procedure that I'm studying clinically. Eno therapy involves wearing this tight-fitting mask that covers your whole nose and mouth. I've got a large and normal head, and so it, it fits very tight on me. <laughs> but it, it's not too constricting. You just lie there, and you can just breathe. Some people describe the Eno gas as having something of a metallic taste, but Reynolds said he didn't notice that. They uh, turn on the Eno. It's a small dose of only 20 parts per million. And this is going to sound very anticlimactic, but I didn't really feel anything. <laughs> but what they learned helped shape their phase one clinical study in healthy volunteers. We would reduce how much oxygen they'd inspire, um, making them what we call hypoxic or reducing the blood oxygen content, and then gave them serial increases in Eno. And we're able to find that even with their oxygen availability reduced, administration of the drug was able to improve tissue oxygen delivery. So it actually enhanced how the red cells were working normally. This particular study was funded by DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency. It's an agency inside the U.S. Department of Defense that funds research projects of strategic interest. Why would the Department of Defense be interested in a gas that allows red blood cells to carry more oxygen? Consider the longest-running war in American history, fought high in the mountains of Afghanistan in the years after 9-11. It can take time for soldiers' bodies to adjust to altitude. And that's what we mimicked in the lab, where we took them, room air is 21% oxygen. We took them down to 12% oxygen, which is equivalent of being on a 12,000-foot mountain. We did it fairly rapidly, modeling like a helicopter taking off from sea level and then dropping troops off. These are healthy subjects of blood oxygen saturation prior to reducing the amount of oxygen they could inspire was pretty close to 100% saturation. And then 
we got them down to about 85% saturation. If you are going up to high altitude, there are a number of people who don't react well to that. You can think of those stories of people coming down from Everest who all of a sudden like run out of auction and take off all their clothes and, and have not uh, a successful outcome. So there is some sort of cerebral dysfunction associated with this reduction in auction. And it actually is relatively easy to think of that same thing happening with COVID in that maybe some of that cerebral dysfunction that is being reported, like people are happy and even though they've got low blood oxygen saturations, may well be because the brain isn't getting the amount of oxygen that it needs to function properly. But you believe there's promise here for COVID-19 patients? Yes, I, I very much do. Because it's a gas, we can blend it relatively easy into the ventilator circuit. Subsequent developments are probably we will develop an ambulatory device too that you could just like slip on your belt. Currently, the team is working to get these therapies out of the lab and into patients. Our team members have submitted an application to get FDA approval to use Eno in patients with COVID. Number two, the agent bortezomib that augments KLF levels. We've previously published that bortezomib prevents blood clots from forming. And so we are seeking proper approval both institutionally and uh, at the level of the FDA to use it in patients with COVID. As public health experts have said from the beginning, this fall and winter, we will likely have a collision of COVID and flu, which could overwhelm the healthcare system. We're gonna have a lot of challenges in meeting the medical demands. And the more we can keep people out of the hospital or shorten their stay in the hospital, we'll have a huge impact on our ability to take care of the most, um, the sickest, but also has huge financial implications for health systems across the land. Including the hospital where Dr. Ryan Paget works. New therapies like the ones Dr. Jane and his colleagues are working on would give physicians new early intervention tools to add to their COVID toolbox. If you can avoid intubation and ventilation early, well, that would be an incredible advancement. There's nothing harder in medicine and to see someone sick and realize we have very little to offer. To see someone struggling to breathe, to, to realize, well, I can put a breathing tube in, but beyond that, there's not a direct treatment. That, that's really difficult. To see suffering, to know that you've trained your whole life to relieve suffering and to cure illness, and to feel that that you open that toolbox and it's relatively empty. That's, that's a terrible feeling. So it would mean everything for us to, to know that there's something to help our patients. And, uh, and we're, we're all desperate to figure out the, the combination of this lock. This fall, Dr. Paget will return to the ER treating patients with a new appreciation for what it means to be one of them. You never truly know it until it is you. It's just to truly understand how far 
the ripple effect is of an illness and to to look at the person sitting next to the patient at the bedside and to truly understand the fear and the anguish that they can be going through. Uh, I think is the, probably the biggest takeaway from it. I'm Rob Piercy. I'm Rachel Tompa. For more Lab Notes episodes and science research news, visit our website at alleninstitute.org. Thanks for listening.